Okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Let's pray, let's go. Stop having so much fun. Three Epiphany, it's green. No, soon it won't be green. Early, early Ash Wednesday, February 19th already. Um, Almighty God and Father who called the Gentiles to enter the fellowship of your Son, Jesus Christ. You who will that all persons be saved, grant, we beg you, that the touch of your word go out to every land and that the gospel is proclaimed to every creature and that every nation be drawn to your altar to serve you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple of things. Men's retreat, sign up. Um, I know everybody, I'm used to this now, everybody signs up at the last minute. This is the last minute. So the, the rooms are going to get released, I think, this week. So if you especially, I mean, you can always come. We have to let the caterers or the, you know, the servers know. We have, to, we have to let people know. So just to rehash, free beer on Friday, free bacon on Saturday. <laughs> Those are the critical things for most men. Uh, so, you know, free beer on Friday, free bacon on Saturday. And then if you stay overnight, or I think a room is 90 bucks, find a roommate, it's 45 Pretend it's spring break at five of your closest friends. It's like a nickel. So um, you can all stay in the same room and deny it to the front desk. Okay, so uh, anyway, sign up. Pete Ladick's coming. Uh, he's a Chicago boy now in California. Uh, I just saw a picture of him yesterday playing golf with Arthur just at Half Moon Bay. It made me lust in my heart. Uh, at Half Moon Bay, there's a great golf course, and you can, like, at the turn at 16 going home, it's, it's appropriate to turn and hit a ball into the ocean just to kind of, you know, placate the gods. Of, you know. uh, so uh, anyway, so I mean, should be good. And anyway, Pete will be here. Life will be good. Um, sign up, okay? Sign up your friends. It's complete, this is completely riskless. If you want to bring somebody to something church, eat, believe me, this is a very low bar. So uh, it's only slightly higher than the steak fry. Uh, donations go to St. Matthew's. Their boiler blew up. Uh, so I don't thirty thousand dollars. You never want your boiler to blow up, blow up. They, you know, they feed a lot of poor people and they do a lot of good things. So this is um, Tony Lowe's dad. You know, we know him. They're kind of he's kind of our guy. Somebody has given in this last week. I think ten thousand dollars in matching funds. So this is a good week to give. John Crow, wherever you are, I'm sure you know that. But back LCC has the the data on the matching funds. Jan Krzyzewski pointed me to that too. So um, anyway, this is, if you give money, it'll go to probably buy a new boiler for. Poor cold people. That's a good thing. All right. Anything else we got to think about? Okay. Let's just read the text from last week. I gave it to you in the in the easier. You know, last week I sort of glossed the text for you and did some other stuff. Here's uh, just an easier way. One of the Pharisees asked Christ over for a meal. Common stuff. Jesus went to the Pharisee's house, and this isn't a good translation. I should say he laid down at dinner, but I'm sure he was writing this because none of you lie down when you have dinner. So you know he was trying to make it sound accessible to you, but it actually misses a lot of the story if you don't have Jesus lying on his left elbow. Just then a woman of the village, the town harlot, which is a nice little insertion, uh, as Mark Twain said, every town needs a drunk, right? Because everybody needs somebody to blame. Very first story in scripture. What's the first story in scripture? You need somebody to blame. Why'd you do that? (laughs) She made me do it. Why'd you do that? He made me do it. All right. So, you know, uh, everybody, every, every town needs a drunk. Having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, 
And, and you remember that the, the dinner at the, at the home of a Pharisee was like when you go home and secretly turn on TMZ. That's, that's what it's like. It's like, okay. Well, so you didn't laugh, so that means you don't know what it is, which means you're pure-hearted. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, you know it's, 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 it's public spectacle. You know, there'd, if, there'd be a Groupon ticket for this dinner now because this is, this is, this is like small-town entertainment. When the rabbi's there and the rich people are over at a banquet, it's like you watching people on the red carpet before the Oscars. That's what this is like. Okay? That's why there's people around who are watching but not participating, because it's a, it's a public event. This is like it's a circus. So Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee. She came with a bottle of very expensive perfume, stood at his feet, weeping and raining tears down, letting her hair down. She dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfume. We did all of that last week. But the key there is the honor of the moment. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, if this man was the prophet I thought he was, what's interesting in that is even the appeal to himself. It doesn't matter if you think somebody's a prophet. A guy's either a prophet or not a prophet. You don't make prophets, and you don't decide who's a prophet and who's not. Even in the question, the guy has such self-interest you can hardly stand it. If this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is. We're going to talk about both of those today who was falling all over him, which is, uh, you know, one way of talking about repentance. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. So there's, that's a very blunt Jesus in answer to a very sassy Pharisee, right? So you got blunt Jesus with from a shaming Pharisee and a blunt Jesus. I've got something to tell you. And it's interesting how the response comes back. Oh, really? Okay, tell me. You know, sort of like bring it because uh, you're not as good as we thought you were. Two men went to a banker, one owed 500 silver pieces. So it's a day's wage, so 500 day, days wages. The other 50, neither could pay up. The banker canceled both debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? And now you remember, we did this. You know, there's only, I only have one song, and I sing it to you over and over again. I just try to disguise it enough that you don't recognize it. But we did this last year. We talked about where does humility come from? Because this is really a story about pride and humility. It's also a story about shame and honor. Those things are all connected. And of course, you remember we talked about this with the virtues last year. So how do you, why is the woman so humble? Because she's grateful. Why is she so grateful? Because she remembers what Jesus is doing to her. So you remember we talked about this with humility. If you want to be humble, you don't aim at being humble. That just boxes everything up. If you want humility as a virtue, humility springs from gratitude, and gratitude springs from memory. So the memory is, what did Jesus just do for me? So, for example, you got your sins forgiven this morning. So Jesus forgave me. I remember that. I'm very thankful because that's something I couldn't do for myself. And because I realized that my own impotence of being able to be f- forgiven or to fix my own sins, that's a, that's a, hum- that's, that's a, um, a humbling moment when you say, I, I can't do this for myself. You know, when people go, say, to a nursing home or when they get ill for the first time, um, one of the common complaints is they, they link um, a loss of mobility with a loss of dignity. Um, and they're very usually humbled by that. Now, why is that? Because they can't do for themselves anymore what they used to be able to do. They used to be able to wash. They can't. They used to be able to eat. They can't. They used to be able to drive. They can't. We talk about that as humility. Why? We, have this, we, we, we remember what we once were, and now we don't have it. This is a more gentle kind of humility and for a much better reason, which is you can't forgive your own sins. And frankly, that's the difference between all the pieces I bring you about the humanist, like playing church on Sunday, and what happens here. 
the crucial difference, which is very explicit. We don't need this, they say. We say, this is the only thing we need. So this is at the altar, and beauty and community wraps around this single thing, the cross of Christ. So the cross is at the center. So how do you be, how, what, if you want humility, how do you get it? You get it by remembering what you've been given. And gratitude and humility flow together from that. Okay, and this is in real time. This is why the, the title of what I've given you today, and I always want to remind you of this, is that this is a skills course. Pretty much Sunday, Sunday morning here in this room is always a skills course. The doctrine comes kind of in the new members class and every week in the liturgy. This is often a skills course. This is like, how do you fit together? How do you fit together in your world? If you do one thing, what happens? If you do another thing, what happens? If you want things to get better, what do you do? If you want things to go wor- or worse, you know, why, what caused that? This is really about, and, and the thing is, is partly what you've been very good about is to understand that much of what happens here is in the realm of sanctification. Why? Because we presume justification, and we presume that justification is connected to sanctification. So this story is a skills story. This is a story about how you deal with the divine, how you come to humility, how you live a life in gratitude, what it means to be part of a community, what it means to be non-judgmental. All of that is in this story. There's 19 lessons in this story. Okay? And it's all happening right in front of you with this very simple thing. She comes up behind him, she cries, she washes him, she anoints him, she honors him, and Jesus honors her back by letting her touch him. Okay? Two men were in debt, neither could pay, the banker canceled both. Who is more grateful? That is to say, who is more humble? Simon answered, I suppose the one who's forgiven the most. There's the key. So, I was forgiven, therefore I'm humble. I was forgiven, therefore I love. Right? First the forgiveness, first the gift of God. God always makes the first move. Then my reaction to that. I can either say, wasn't that big of a deal? It was only 50. Or I can say, that was a really big deal. In the scriptures, the older and wiser you get, the more you realize how even a single sin chips away at your soul. How even a single sin is, is dangerous. It's very important to understand that. Your sins aren't good for you. They chip away at your soul. And even a single sin is very dangerous. And you stack up your sins habitually, and it's death by a thousand cuts. On the other hand, every gift, you know, inoculates you. Every gift strengthens you. Every gift protects you. And so that's, that's in this story, too. So, that's right, I suppose, the one who forgave most. That's right, says Jesus. That's how the world works. So, you, you know, you, now you've got, a, you've got an economy for how the world works, uh, how, a theology of how it works. Turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon. Such an interesting thing. I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you. Uh, you do this yourselves with your kids sometimes, or you do it with an earshot of other people. And people are like, you're talking so loud, and you're like, I meant to talk that loud, right? You've done this. I know you, Okay. <laughs> Right? He's looking at one, he's talking to the other. It's very interesting. Turn to the woman, speaking of Simon. Do you see this woman? I came to your home, you provided no water for my feet. She rained tears down, dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. This great greeting, this great humble. You know, kissing the hand is humility. Kissing the feet is like uncomfortable, you know, how people are humbling themselves. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, so she is very, very grateful. That gets it exactly right. Jesus forgives many, many sins, 
So you and I and this woman and everybody else are very, very grateful. When people are not grateful, it means they haven't been forgiven or they don't understand forgiveness or they don't value forgiveness. It's a really simple, it's really a really simple equation, if then. It's a very simple equation. If you understand that Jesus forgives you many, many sins, then you are very, very grateful. And very, very grateful shows itself in all the things we always talk about, Christ and Scripture and prayer. So if you're very grateful, you'll say your prayers, right? If you're very grateful, you'll say to Jesus, thank you very much. If you're very grateful, you'll provide for other people, tithing and alms. If you're very grateful, you'll be merciful. You'll forgive, as Jesus says, just as you've been forgiven. This is, this, is, this is just so simple. There's only one story in Scripture. Jesus just tells the same story over and over again from many different perspectives. Old Testament today, Jonah. It, this, is exact, this is the Jonah story. This is the Christmas story. There's only one story in Scripture. This is it. That Jesus comes, and Jesus gives his gifts, and he gives them to you, and you can either say, thank you very much, which is faith, or you could say, it wasn't that big a deal, or I didn't really need that, or I can live without that, or I'll come back in a year from now or I'll live the way I want, or whatever, right? So she was forgiven many, many sins, so she's very, very grateful. The forgiveness is minimal. If the forgiveness is minimal, then the gratitude is minimal. That's just a great progression of how your own life works. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins, and the dinner guest said behind his back, which of course is how it works, you know, at the Oscars. Um, Who does he think he is wearing that tux, uh, forgiven those sins? Jesus, isn't this interesting? So yesterday in New Members, we talked a little bit about Matthew 18 and about giving offense and taking offense. You know what? People sin against you. You frankly don't always have to notice. This is a great example of Jesus. He just is too busy to take offense. He's He's tired of it. He just doesn't need to correct everything about everything all the time. It's like, I gave you the goods, why don't you just think about that for just a little bit. So Jesus ignored them. He chooses not to take offense. He chooses not to notice. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, which is to say, the fact that I forgave you saved you. Your agreement with what I've just done to you saved you. Go in peace. So first the forgiveness, then the gratitude, okay? So we're going to scooch all the way back because I haven't done anything with either outline except I've done it all. So we'll just talk about it a little bit. But you got it in front of you. So use the one I gave you today, the little appendix. That, that what we're doing here is a skills course. You okay? You got questions about anything? For you, this should be falling off a log. This is just reinforcement of stuff you hear all the time, all the time, right? But you, you and I, we need to understand how important this is because if Jesus talks about this in every story, virtually every story is like this in Scripture, This is the one thing that Jesus wants you to get. He gives a gift, and he's very interested in you being grateful. You can can reduce almost every story. That's that's sort of the core of all these stories. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave, that whoever believes in him, that's this story, right? I came that you'd have life and have it abundantly. That's this story. This woman gets to have life abundantly now, differently. Same as the woman who was caught in adultery. Same as Zacchaeus. It's just the same story over and over again. So, but you have to get this right. And this is a Lutheran trouble spot. If you've met Lutherans, if you ever knew a Lutheran, if you bumped into a Lutheran on a cold, dark night, they would, if you put a gun to their head and asked them, is the heart of God, you know, wrath or love? You know, the problem is too, too many would, well, it should be 100% saying the heart of God is divine love. God creates from love. The reason you're here is because 
the Holy Trinity was saying, wouldn't it be nice if there were more of us to love? I have an idea. Let's make people. Right? God's heart is love. You would think, often growing up in the Lutheran Church, that God's heart is wrath. You would think that because so often we're quick to judge. And, uh, you would think, and we confuse pure doctrine with enforcing pure doctrine. And we, you know, we think about us versus them, so we're defined by what we hate and not by what we love. I just sort of put this to you. you know, next time you're a little squeamish when you see your, you're going to your Catholic friend's house and they have that heart of Jesus with the blood streaming out of it, just say a rosary in front of it before you have sherry before dinner, okay? <laughs> just checking to see if you're still awake. So um, <laughs> there's a reason, you know, there's a reason why the sacred heart of Jesus, it's like so many other things. If you sort of ditch everything that you're afraid of because somebody else embraces it, you know, it's not wrong. Just so you know, sacre coeur, it's not wrong. You know, next time you're in Paris, wander up there. You're about by tapestries. This is heck, you know, you know the way. You've walked up there before, and th- those goatee guitar players you enjoy so much when you're in Paris, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, the Sacred Heart, it's one of the great churches for, you know, hippie reasons, right? The Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's, you know, Jesus' Sacred Heart is a loving heart, it's not a wrathful heart. Jesus will only be your enemy if you make him be your enemy. In some ways now, you know, we've been together long enough, and in some ways this is kind of a compendium of, you know, greatest hits and aphorisms. But really, there's a framework, which if you don't put it in front of yourselves from time to time, you can't remember it. And if you don't remember it, then you won't act properly. So, I mean, to start with, the heart of God, the heart of God is love, not wrath. Okay, the corollary to that is, Jesus will only be your enemy if you make him be your enemy. Simon kind of makes an enemy out of Jesus. Jesus has done everything he can. He's come home. He's had dinner. It's really important. He's honored Simon. Now, he's also honored the woman, which makes Simon think somehow his honor has been violated. This is like when you have brothers and sisters and you worry whether your parents love your brother more than they love you, right? If you love all your kids equally, you don't love your kids because your kids aren't equal. The best law and gospel, you pre-sem guys, is specific law and gospel. The best law and gospel is specific. The best love is specific love. I need to be loved in a different way than you need to be loved because I'm a different kind of people. The point is, is that Jesus miraculously loves us all differently and yet loves us all thoroughly. It's very important to understand that. So my life isn't going to be like your life and your life is not going to be like mine. This is the commandments about being content with what you've got, 9 and 10. Because God loves you, he'll give you the stuff that you need just the way you need it. And it's going to be different than the stuff he gives me. So if I envy the stuff that you've got, I don't understand God's love for me. Right? The heart of God is love, and he loves each of us specifically. It's very, very important. So he's going to love the Pharisee in one way, and he's going to love the woman in another way, but they're both thorough and complete. It's very important. The heart of God is love. You have to start with that. You would think, if you went to seminary school, if you went to pastor school, you would think, you know, that the heart of God was wrath. And that's partly because seminary is under the law, because they're always grading you, evaluating you, trying to figure you out, right? There's something inherently about the law. School is under the law, not under the gospel. You know, even if you have nice intentions, if you don't t- turn your final paper in, that's an F, okay? <laughs> Yes, and that and F is the law, just in case you're curious, uh, especially if you're paying tuition. So, the Lord's heart is divine love. I mean, you just have to have that out in front. Loving us into faith and hope, Jesus gradually presses us into his image. Colossians 3, you know, 9 and 10, which says, 
you know, we're growing up into the image of Christ. We too are becoming, as Luther says, little Christ to each other. So we're called to love. This is very important now because this is going to be how you engage people and what you worry about at the end. So over the course of our time together, there have been two things that have been primarily, I've sort of heard you express angst about. One is um, our loving of other people, and the other is them loving us back. And in fact, maybe not loving us at all, maybe thinking we're stupid, maybe being angry at us, maybe being afraid of us, right? So this is very important to, to, to think in this way, that Jesus loves us, he loves us into something, that he presses us into the image of Jesus, and if Christianity in some sense is really a skills course, then it means seeing and saying and doing what Jesus says and does and sees. The trick to Christianity is to see as Jesus sees, to say as Jesus says, to do as Jesus does. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's agreement. And in a single word, that's what faith is. Faith agrees. Right? Amen is the way we say that in the church. When we say amen, that means I agree with you. So you hold up the host. This is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Take, eat the body of Christ. Amen. Yes, it is. I agree with that. Right? The creed. I agree with all of that. I forgive you all your sins. Amen. I agree with that. That's all that faith is. People make this great big deal out of, do you have faith and how big is your faith and how strong is your faith? Some days good, some days bad, because some days, frankly, you're good and some days you stink. So, um, you know, but faith is simply this agreement. Yes, it's true, right? So, and I just give you a run of things we've talked about, that every challenge is a chance to exercise divine virtue. So you're gonna, it's going to be painful when you give this witness. I, here's the thing. And I tried to give you some stuff two weeks ago from Simone Weil about suffering. You know, you and I think that pleasure is our end. That's been popular for about 200 years. It was not known that much before that. But it's a false turn. It's weird that you can talk about human beings in history taking a false turn for two or 300 years. But, hey, it happens, right? And the Enlightenment, in some sense, was great. In another sense, it was a wrong turn. Because it thought that our problems were our problems and we would solve them ourselves and that God didn't exist. We talked ourselves out of God. That was a wrong turn. Um, but there were a lot of good things, but, you know, frankly, that part didn't work out. Well, to define ourselves as always in need of pleasure, which is exactly one way to think about, you know, the economic structure in America is to create need for pleasure. Well, to be honest, so just, just test that over the weekend. No, wait till next weekend and test it on Super Bowl weekend. Just, just watch the commercials on Super Bowl weekend and see if they tell you anything other than you need to be pleased and this is how it can be done, right? That was sort of unknown before. That wasn't a primary virtue. In fact, people valued suffering in the sense that suffering is a good teacher, right? So every challenge, even you loving this harlot, for example, or loving somebody who comes in the door who smells or doesn't look like you or seems vaguely threatening, um, you know, that's a chance to exercise divine virtue. And to that, you know, we just do the best we can. And I've sort of given these other things I've talked about. I won't go through them today, but the ability to see the room and imagine the possibilities is really the mark of a mature church. I'm turning the page. So, you know, and I'll just remind you, because every once in a while we've got to remind you. We've done this. We did this for a month or two a couple of different times, which is in the scripture, you know, you're meant to do your best. That's what the text says. You can look it up. We've done it a couple of times, but Philippians 1.9 says, this is my prayer for you, that you do your best. And then he tells you what best is. Very simply, it's divine love expressed through you. It is thorough obedience to Jesus and what he says. So you do as Jesus does and say as Jesus says. 
and that you increase in maturity. You can't make yourself increase in maturity, but it's like, you know, being 13 and then being 17. If you get your sleep and eat your vegetables and say your prayers and be a good little hulkster, eventually, you know, wow, no, no cultural reaction to that. <laughs> so you can pretend like you never saw the hulkster or maybe you're too young, I don't know. So the thing is, is, uh, you know, eventually, if you do the right things, maturity almost comes automatically. And so we sort of said, it's an Acts 2 church, Christ scripture prayer, the liturgy wrapped around the Eucharist, tithing and alms, lavish mercy and a good witness, a winsome witness. If you just sort of do those things, touch those things, are touched by those things, passive verbs are always better in the church, then you'll, you'll grow up into... Um, you know, the kind of person, the kind of Christian that Christ wants you to be. You'll be pressed, you'll gradually, these things will react on you, they will act on you, and they will press you into the image of Christ. If you don't do them, you won't grow up. If you do do them, you will grow up. It's that simple, right? You want rickets? You want scurvy? No, you do not. So eat what you're supposed to eat and drink what you're supposed to drink. It's the same way in, in, the, in the Christian life. You do these things, it comes automatically. Why? Because they do something to you. Jesus touches you and Jesus changes you. Most sin is to protect yourself from Jesus. Sort of the definition of sin is protecting yourself from Jesus. Often because you don't want to be changed or don't want to be used. Because you like your life the way it is right now. It's pleasant. But of course, if you ditch the idea that pleasant is a criterion for life, where, say, obedience is more important or maturity is more important or love, you know what's really unpleasant? Loving icky people. That's really unpleasant. The cross is really an unpleasant thing. But that's the definition of Jesus. So it's very difficult to, you know, hold to Jesus on the cross, take up your cross and follow me, take up your cross daily, and then also um, kind of make pleasure your primary interest. Right? So you got to kind of think all this through. Um, and then with the final codicil, the last thing under number two, that you just remember that Jesus wants all his children home again. So Jesus does want Simon the Pharisee home. But actually, he wants the town harlot home as well. Jesus wants all his children home again. And when you see other people, you see, as Jesus says in the end of Matthew 26-ish, 24-ish, you know, you see Jesus. When you do things to them, you did it to me. When did we ever see you naked or in prison or starving to death? And Jesus is like, you kidding me? When you saw them, you saw me. So the trick of being a Christian is to be able to see that Jesus wants all his children home again. And when you see any child, you see Christ wants that child home again. Even the people that you and I would consider the worst, Jesus wants them home again. So that's, that's all just backdrop for what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is give a good witness to people. I'm suggesting to you, I have been suggesting to you, that probably the, you know, probably the last 50 years or so wasn't very um, helpful because... It worked primarily from anger and fear. I was in um, the city after Christmas with my daughter. I just happened to get it caught on a street corner next to a street preacher. And you know, and the light turned red. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get the whole sermon here. <laughs> but I, it gave me a chance to kind of, because this is on my mind, you know, it gave me to think about this, and it gave me the chance to watch it in the context of a hundred, you know, fairly well-to-do people on Michigan Avenue in the corner, you know, yeah, where we were, I don't even remember, somewhere. But, I mean, it was like, you know, 
right outside her mezzo, something. I don't know. It was right there. Right, you know, I mean, everybody was rich. And this guy was freezing to death with a, a big, you know, old Fender guitar amp and saying to people, you know, I used to be like you and your lusts are going to take you to hell and hell's going to last a long time and the worms are going to eat you right down to the bones and then, you know, and you're horrible. And, and I was trying to think to myself, you know, so many of the things that he said were not wrong in just a, kind of a broad sense. But I was trying to think about both the motivation and the effectiveness. And I was re what I really would have wanted to know is, who put him up to it? Like I was just kind of thinking to myself, how does a guy who's probably 32, you know, what's his life like that he's on a street corner in downtown Chicago making everybody hate him and he knows he is? Okay? Now, it's very interesting because, of course, in some sense, um, in, a, in a twisted sense, you know, there's some Jesus stuff going on in there. But one has to ask both about um, kind of moral position, how you think about those people around you. When you say to people, I used to be like you, right? I mean, there's a, there's a judgment. That's not, there's as much a judgment about I hate you as that Jesus hates you. I mean, there's a, there's a very, that's a very self-pronouncing kind of judgment. I used to be like you. You know, that's dangerous, I think, in some way. And also... Is that really, is that really, does that really soften the hearts of the crowd you're talking to? Right? Does it? I mean, the thing is, for the last 50 or 75 years, or maybe for the last 150 years in America, just up from the tent meeting thing all the way through, you know, maybe we think that it does. I'm kind of arguing to you that it doesn't. That the bigger dork you are doesn't mean the more faithful you are. Right? And the more wrathful you are, you can't go home and have a, you know, a PBR and tell yourself what a great job you did. I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. I think it's also, it's, to take the Mother Teresa stance seems to me to be much more difficult, which is you live with the people and you love the people who, frankly, are very different from you and may even hate you and occasionally may try to kill you. you know? I mean, that's a very, it's a different way to think about the world. Um, I don't expect any of you are going to end up on a street court on Michigan Avenue, but you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to bump into people and a lot of those people are going to have big holes in their heart. And um, you, intellectually, at least know how to plug those holes, right? But how, when, when and how is it going to come out, if it ever comes out? So this is why kind of a winsome witness is the last thing that happens in maturity, because it's so flippin' difficult. And we make so many wrong moves. And it's one thing to hurt yourself. If you've had kids, you'd know this. It's one thing to hurt yourself. But if you hurt somebody else, I mean, huge responsibility. Not the least of the reasons why is because it's very hard to go back and make it up. A lot of, with a lot of people, you get one chance. So part of this then is, how do you engage? What, what sort of skills would it take to make the best use of your one chance that you get with people? Because here's the bet. Here, this is the bet, okay? That if you're kind, if you're present, if you're quiet, eventually people will trust you enough or their lives will stink so much that they'll pour out their chaos right in front of you. And that's the moment you have. I know that the guy on the street corner is trying to create the moment, but I'd be surprised if anybody talked to him all day long except to flip him off. I'd be really surprised if anybody walking by felt like, especially given the moment, even if you wanted to talk to the guy, you wouldn't talk because now there's two of you who everybody's going to hate, right? And who wants to join a club where everybody hates you? You see how twisted this gets? So by the end, you get like no community, no beauty, no love. Anyway, just think it all the way through. 
What we're trying to do is to do the other thing, which is without forsaking Jesus, we're trying not to be dorks. Without forsaking Jesus, we're trying to get a chance that doesn't depend on force or fear or anger, that does depend on being loving and being kind and being quiet and basically choosing your battles. Okay? And when it comes, what do you have to say? And the answer is, you tell a story like this. Jesus told a story like that. Jesus has a nice story for that. Jesus helped me with that. Or Jesus has already taken care of that. Those are, those are sentences that are under 10 words long that are readily available to you. And frankly, not a lot more needs to be said because it's just an entree. And if it goes unheeded, you know, it goes unheeded. You wait for your next spot. Okay? So anyway, what sort of persons ought we to be in holiness and righteousness? You can read that in second period. The point is the kind that's kind, that loves the unlovable and is with people who are extraordinarily lonely, okay? And we've, I sort of done all this now kind of as I've talked about a winsome witness. So at point five, and this is sort of the paradigm that I've been working with. It's kind of building as we go, but be present. This is point five on the 8A appendix, the new thing for today. Be present, be patient, right? So you don't rap on somebody's door at dinner time and say to them, you know, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? Because people hate you for that, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you. I mean, that erases whatever nice... You could say, you know, and now I'm going to give you a million dollars. It wouldn't matter because the door would already be slammed shut in your face. People hate you when you do that, okay? Be present, be patient, be kind, listen, because eventually people will spill their chaos. If you listen, people are all too willing to spill their chaos if you listen. And then you have this option of maybe asking a question. You know, about 80% of the world's problems would be solved if people would buy a question mark. The world is filled with assertions and many of them wrong. If people would just move to a question mark occasionally, myself included, life would be a lot, lot easier. Okay? So the ability to ask a question, and not a loaded question, not a pejorative question, right? Not a rhetorical question, which is like something like, which is the, you know, the questionable equivalent of saying, with all due respect, right before you disrespect somebody, right? Or to be honest with you right after you're going to be mean, right? That's because that's the next thing coming. Okay, so be present like Jesus was at Cana. The great, the great wedding story at Cana, what's the difference between that miracle and every other miracle? Jesus does the miracle just by being on the guest list. He doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't touch anything, doesn't do anything. The water turns to wine because Jesus RSVP'd. Jesus' presence makes a difference, okay? Be patient. I'm flipping the page. Be kind. And I'll give you under the be kind, Jesus doesn't pre-sort. This is on the other thing, and hopefully by the time, you know, in the next six minutes, both of these will magically be done. Okay, but here's the thing. What happens with Simon? Simon pre-sorts in his head. We do this all the time. We pre-sort people. So that kind of person, this kind of person, not that kind of person, they're already engaged. In my first parish, okay, 5,000 people, 10 churches. With the elders, we started going down. I'm like, 5,000 people, 10 churches. I said, one, that's a church for, I said, does everybody go to church? No, nobody goes to church. I'm like, disconnect. So we took the phone book, right? This is just as an exercise. You know, we just sort of started reading names in the phone book. I'm like, what about, let's call this person. They're like, oh, no, they go to the Pentecostal church. I'm like, do they go? Well, no, but their family goes there. I'm like, okay, what about this one? They go to the Catholic church. Do they go? No, but their whole family's Catholic. What about this guy? They go to the Baptist church. Do they go? No, but they, you know, it's like, 
the presupposition is that everybody's already preloaded to a particular congregation based on, their, or based on their family group. So there's no point in talking to anybody about anything because nobody will listen because we presume, why would anybody talk to the town harlot? Because she's not interested in Jesus. When it turns out, she's the most interested person in Jesus. There's nobody in town more interested. Simon's not interested. The people who listened aren't interested. She's really interested. And she's the one we presuppose in the story is not interested. She's telling you her chaos. She's weeping on his feet. She's touching him. She's anointing him, right? She's welcoming him. She's the one who's interested. So usually our presuppositions are not for other people. They're for us. Our presuppositions is how we sort people so we don't have to work so hard. Because we're sure that those people wouldn't be interested and those people don't care and those people are young and those people are old and those people have a different skin color and those people... We make all these presuppositions about people so we can avoid giving a winsome witness, so we can avoid being calm. Hey, Jesus wants all his children home again. And part of what you're supposed to see in Simon is he gets it wrong. It's such a great story because of the difference between Jesus and Simon. Jesus comes in an honor and shame culture. And Jesus honors Simon, the rich host, the best guy in town. And Jesus honors the harlot, the worst woman in town. So Jesus comes without presuppositions with the heart of love. So everybody's in and nobody's out. Jesus wants all his children home again. That's Jesus' presupposition. And everybody else in the story has presuppositions about who's in and who's out. And they're watching this show. Isn't this great? I wonder what will happen next. And Simon, rather than when he has the chance to flip sides, he doubles down instead. So now he not only you know, shames the woman, she's a town harlot, he shames Jesus. If he were any kind of prophet, he wouldn't have let the woman touch him because, one, she's a whore, and two, everybody knows in Jewish culture that when you're touched by something unclean, it makes you unclean. And, of course, the great reversal for Jesus is, no, Jesus is like a big sponge you buy at Walmart. <laughs> Jesus could be a Super Bowl commercial because what Jesus does when he touches you is he sucks your sins right out of you. Right? Like in Harry Potter, those guys, when they would suck your souls out of you. You remember? Right. So, I mean, that's just what Jesus does. When he touches you, he sucks it right out of you, all that horrible stuff. So, I mean, that's the great reversal, of course. Jesus, when he touched sinners, doesn't become, he doesn't become like them. They become like him. So you go to the Eucharist today, Jesus touches you. Jesus doesn't become like you. You become like him. You become holy. Right? I mean, now I get it. Jesus takes your sins to the cross. He's defiled. But that would, now we've got to go to an excuse. The point is, Jesus isn't, ruined by, by, um, Jesus isn't ruined by touching sinful people. And we're not ruined by touching sinful people. That's the point, okay? Um, I just want to push you toward, well, gosh, why is this always so short? So here's the thing. I tried to give you a couple of lines here where you can say, you know, I know a story like this. I'm just above number six. You know, I know a story like that, or Jesus told a story like that. Those are very non-threatening things. Or to say, to say, I know a story like that, or to say the baby Jesus will take care of it, is a very non-threatening way. You're not responsible for the story or the content. Your responsibility lies simply with saying what you know. Yeah, my use, life used to be really chaotic, and now it's not. Really? Why? Because Jesus loves me a lot. Or you can shortcut it and just say, because I go to the Eucharist, which completely flummoxes people, especially in Wheaton, Illinois. I say that on the heels of my annual lecture this week at 
which I love doing. God bless Scotty May, the professor always asked me to come to graduate school to give a lecture on the spiritual formation of, the, of children through the liturgy, right? So I'm always giving it to a group of people who don't actually know what the liturgy is. I have to kind of define what that is. But here's the thing, you got all your things going. I mean, it's just, you just have a, this is what Jesus does. Jesus touches, why are you saved? Because Jesus baptized me, because Jesus touches, why are you forgiven? Because Jesus touches me at the Eucharist. Why do, you know, why do you know you're going to heaven, the eternal Eucharist? Because Jesus said so. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Have a nice day, right? Those are very simple things to say. I'm going to end with point six because we do have to go. Um, I just want to talk about giving people, or point seven actually. To, to lose your presuppositions about people and to love them actually gives them room. You who read around a little bit, in the Peasants' War for Luther... Um, you know, there was this uprising, and whose side are you going to take? Are you going to take the king's side, the prince's side? Are you going to take the peasant's side? You know, Luther sort of said, this isn't good for the gospel, this chaos. But he did sort of turn to the princes, to the landlords, and he said, give those peasants room to breathe. It's a great phrase. Give them some room to breathe. Which is, is, if you lean on people all the time and you never show them a way out, if you never give people an escape, they will never, ever change. There's no point in changing. There's no percentage in it. Forgiveness is the way out. We did this about three years ago in Lent. Remember what we talked about? I, I led on Ash Wednesday with the kid who wrote graphic novels and burned up in the New York subways, and they found his journal. And he had rules for, rules for living underground in the subway as a homeless person. So he was rich above ground, but he lived in the subway because that's how he grew up. And the first rule is, was... Um, always have a way out that's different than the way in. That's flipping genius. Always have a way out that's different than the way in. People suffocate and die when they don't have a way out. If you, if you are so hard on your children that you crush them, don't be surprised when they leave at 18 and you never talk to them again because they need air to breathe. You've got to give people room. It is the very same. Look at the room that Jesus gives this woman. Everybody else hates her. There's no place to go. And it's like Jesus creates space for her right beside his couch. That's how forgiveness works. You have to do that same thing. You create space for people. You do that by loving people that nobody else will love. You do that by giving a Jesus word that doesn't look like being on Michigan Avenue and say the worms are going to eat you forever, ever, amen. You know, maybe, but that's not the main point. Christianity is not about staying out of hell. Christianity is about walking in the way of Jesus. You heard it in the gospel for today. Jesus doesn't say, you so-and-sos, you're going straight to hell. Jesus says, hey, why don't you follow me? Because we're going to have some fun. That's how Jesus talks. So Jesus makes space for people that no one else will make space for. It's extraordinarily important that you see that. So in giving a winsome witness, that's why being present, the great affirmation of people, being kind, because nobody else is kind to them, being quiet because nobody else listens to them, right? And having a kind word when everybody else only has a harsh word, the room expands and people have, have, have a place to live, right? Instead of a place to die. That's what you're doing. That's why it's so important. Okay, we got to go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, cheers. Thanks.